I mean, I think what we've learned over and over in the last couple months is we're just not going to trend towards normal. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauker, FP's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by Julie Smith, who's heading up FP's shadow government blog with Colin Call and Derek Cholet. She's also a senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Joining us today is Jim Townsend, an FP shadow government columnist as well, and an adjunct senior fellow in the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Previously, he served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for European and NATO Policy at the Department of Defense, and has also held positions at NATO and the Atlantic Council. And finally, I'm joined by Robbie Gramer, a staff writer at FP. ER nerds, if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So, Trump just got back from his European whirlwind trip uh, over the Memorial Day weekend and proudly proclaimed it to be a home run, Right. He, uh, he was at the NATO summit. He had the G7 summit in Sicily. He had a lovely and incredibly awkward photo shoot with the, uh, the Pope at the Vatican. And it seemed like, at least from here in Washington, from our perspective, it was just full of awkward moments. There was that white-knuckle handshake with Emmanuel Macron, the new president of France, Trump riding in a golf cart while everyone else is walking. And so there's this worry that, he, that there's this crazy disconnect um, so, Julie, I mean, did we see out of Trump's comments in NATO something that's really concerning? Yeah, I think we did. Uh, Europeans were waiting for the president to say one thing, and they wanted him to reaffirm America's commitment to Article 5 of the NATO treaty. That's the clause in the NATO treaty that says one attack, attack on one is attack on all. And in fact, Trump stood up and instead of reaffirming that clause and reassuring our European allies, blasted them about European defense spending in a very caustic uh, speech that really ruffled some feathers. They were expecting to get beat up over defense spending, but I think the tone of it uh, really struck some as unnecessary and a little bit over uh, overkill. So what happened as a result of that is that the meeting didn't go as well as planned. Uh, Europeans really wanted to be reassured. They left feeling worried that because he omitted that line, it signals some shift in American foreign policy that if they get into a bind with Russia or some other threat out there, that maybe, just maybe, the United States won't be there to back them up. So it was not a bright, shiny summit, mini summit. It wasn't even a full summit at the NATO headquarters. Um, but that moment where he stood up and failed to reaffirm America's commitment to NATO really cast a dark shadow on the transatlantic relationship. I mean, the symbolism struck me as really odd. He, there he is at the opening of the new NATO headquarters, and he's standing right next to a memorial to 9-11, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the only time that Article 5 has ever actually been That's invoked right. where yeah. the NATO powers came to America's aid. Right. You know, it was like a volleyball game in the sense that with the two ministerials that had just happened with defense and foreign ministers, a very successful visit by the NATO Secretary General to Washington, where 
where the president announced that NATO was not obsolete. Things were trending in the right direction. And like in a volleyball game, those events had set the ball up for Trump to go to NATO, cut the ribbon, and just spike the ball right over the net. It would have been such a great Great speech to talk about unity, to talk about – he can certainly talk about defense spending. But, you know, that that ground had been plowed two or three times before he arrived at NATO headquarters. So he could have touched on that, but he could have focused on the need to move forward, uh, the need to take these new capabilities that we'll be buying and to take on uh, terrorism and to talk about Russia, to say something about Russia. That was a big – Elephant in the room, right? Absolutely. He was an elephant in the room. And you can bet that that was in the back of the minds of so many of the heads of state and government that were standing there. It could have been a great centerpiece for that overseas trip. But it wasn't. And it was shocking because the ball was set up so well and he absolutely muffed it. So, I mean, here's the thing. You guys have been in government. You've written speeches before. Did they just blow it? Did they forget it? Or was this an actual conscious decision to to not say to for you know the US government to say, hey, look, we are not necessarily gonna come to your back if, you know, Russian tanks come rolling in through the Fulda Gap. I think it's deliberate. I think uh, we've heard from former colleagues at the Pentagon that efforts were made in advance of the speech to get in there and try and alter some of the language. Not only was their language supposedly stressing America's commitment to Article 5, but they also had language in there, I think, uh, that would have prevented the president from making it sound like NATO's a country club. You always hear this phrase, past dues are owed, they're in arrears. Um, It sounds like there's a giant pot of money and somehow countries haven't put enough into the big pot. There's no pot. There's no pot of money. Um, We have been encouraging our European allies to invest in their own national defense budgets. So Trump got that wrong in the speech again. And so our understanding is that someone had got in under the hood and, and tried to remove references to that, the fact that countries are in arrears and Germany in particular owes so much, and they tried to insert language on Article 5, and it never made the final cut. So, yeah, and allies have heard the same and are worried by that. Absolutely. And, you know, so many times, as we found out when we wrote speeches, you think you have the speech put to bed and everyone is, has chopped on it, as they say, and it's ready to go. <laughs> But the, at the last minute, particularly a president will say, well, that's not what I want to say. And he's getting ready to walk on the stage and he goes off the top of his head. Uh, and it could very well be that uh, he might have he might have gotten the good draft and, and yeah. just went through it and then spoke from the heart, if you will. And but his heart, I think, is not the heart that should have been spoken from at that time. Yeah. So I think another just to pile on here, the optics couldn't have been worse. I mean, there was the super awkward handshake with Macron, but then there was also this horrible moment that was caught on camera where Trump sort of shoved the Montenegro leader aside um, to get to the front of the pack for a photo op in in a pretty brusque and rude way. And of course, Montenegro is the going to be the newest member of NATO. You know, it's it's fought tooth and nail for its NATO membership. Hell, it survived a attempted Russian coup almost in, in its last election in recent months. Mm-hmm. And so they just and then and then after that, you know, there there was this photo op and all the leaders, you know, milled about and talked with one another before getting off stage. And no one really talked with Trump. It, it was like this 
this visual manifestation of how isolated Trump had become from European allies. So, so it just wasn't it wasn't great. And I actually talked to a few people over at NATO HQ over the weekend who said they were just really disappointed with with how the visit went, just optics wise alone. And and you know, someone even said that that it might have been better if Trump didn't even come, which is a pretty powerful statement. Well, that's some nasty business. Yeah. So you had written, Robbie, that uh, that they tried to spice up the NATO summit to sort of give it a the Trump gloss, right? To make it to have less people, you know, it generally is right. The heads of state go around and they say their piece and then people respond. And I think we did a piece where, you know, we talked about how Obama at the last at the Warsaw ministerial, I think it was in 2016, everyone went around the room and you sit there patiently. But apparently they had to give it a little bit of extra glitz and glamour huh, for Trump. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, well, Jim and Julie can speak better to this, but from what I've heard, these snack meetings are infamously boring. I mean, you know, with with 28 members, if each head of state has five minutes, which means 15 minutes in, in head of state time, you know, it can take two and a half, three hours just to say hello. So so they were trying to spice it up, um, you know, cut down the time, try, try to cut leaders off to a certain, you know, maximum allotted time to speak. Um, they were talking about doing some sort of communique. I, I know it wasn't a formal summit, but some document afterward, but worried because that's so seeped in sort of this bland bureaucratic drivel, maybe in, in Trump's mind that that they scrapped that plan. But So let's talk about Russia. I mean, elephant in the room, Sean Spicer then eventually said, oh, look, well, look, Trump was there and we're an official member of NATO. So, of course, we agree to everything that NATO agrees to, which seemed like some sort of weak need uh, spin. Um, but, you know, the Trump investigation in, and the Russian investigation is lingering there. Clearly, everyone's aware of it. So so what do we think about the Russia angle? I mean, does does NATO – NATO clearly doesn't feel a great deal of security from this administration. Uh, the Baltic states are crying out for more assistance. There have been efforts both under Obama and I think continuing under Trump to put additional you know, troops there, training, some exercises. But where does it go from here? Well, first, I'd say I'll give Trump partial credit for showing up. It matters that he, he that he went and he should keep going despite the difficulties with these events. It's important to have the U.S. president present at these these meetings. But I say partial because you get full credit when you actually bring ideas, you show leadership, you're able to showcase transatlantic unity and resolve. And the allies wanted much more, much more than just showing up. So I disagree with Sean Spicer that somehow by showing up at the summit, the president then, in theory, supports Article 5 without saying that. I, I just I can't get from A to B on that one. On Russia, I mean, you're right. The allies do feel insecure. They feel skittish. They're anxious, particularly those in Central and Eastern Europe. They're worried about Russia's ongoing aggression in their neighborhood, Russia's attempt to redraw the borders of Europe, all the tactics, the asymmetric tactics on which it relies. And so they've been waiting for months to hear from the United States, what is the plan going forward? One, are you going to keep troops in Europe? Two, are you going to give us more? Three, what other support can we count on above and beyond military presence? Uh, and four, where are you going to take your bilateral relationship with Russia and how does Europe fit into that? And Trump provided almost no answers on any of those. We do know that in the budget, we have seen commitment to keep the U.S. presence in Poland. The enhanced forward presence, which was put forward in the Obama administration, in theory will remain. That's a good thing. But allies want more than that. 
They really want to understand what's the plan on Ukraine? Will we keep sanctions in place this summer? Collectively, what's our agenda? We know we have to engage with the Russians, but we also want to know how we're going to tackle this increasingly aggressive actor in our neighborhood. And so they've been waiting with bated breath, and they were told, don't worry, we'll you'll come to learn the plan when you see the president. And he almost, he mentioned Russia once and almost in passing in his speech. And other than that, they didn't get much out of it. So what does that say to them? It says that the administration probably doesn't have a plan to the extent that it's going to gauge in Russia. It will do so without consulting our European allies. Uh, and that Russia is going to also be a stain on this administration because of the ongoing Russia scandal surrounding so many members of his team. I mean, adding to that, you know, after a president's visit, you know, there's there's a lot of follow-up at the mid, you know, high levels of the bureaucracies. But right now, particularly with Trump's Europe team, the light's on, but nobody's home. He doesn't have an assistant secretary of state for Europe. He doesn't have a NATO ambassador. He doesn't have, you know, those really important middle managers in, in the Pentagon to follow up and, you know, maybe soothe allies more, talk to them more on a day-to-day -day basis, say, oh, Trump didn't say Article 5, but we're still doing this, we're still doing that. Um, and so I think that will just sort of add to the to the nervousness that, that Julie was talking about. Yeah, I mean, Germany, I mean, Ang Angela Merkel came out over the weekend with this, you know, what would seem like a blockbuster kind of statement, right, that, you, that Germany can no longer trust the, the United States and Britain to to stand with Germany and Germany's values. I mean, that's a big statement that Europe, that the the epicenter, right? The the you know the core of Europe, the strongest economy, the guiding force in the EU, basically says we can't trust our two biggest partners. What does that mean? You know, that's a it's a great point, and I think it kind of illustrates what I've always had to keep in my mind in looking at Europe, and that is Europe for so long, for so many years, has, I won't call it a dependency, but there's been this trust that's developed where they would follow our lead vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union or vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Um, and they were usually together on it. I mean, they were, you know, certainly the individual Russian nations, I mean, individual European nations would have uh, different views. But on the whole, the U.S. provided a more or less a consistent and a reliable approach to how, how to handle the Soviets during the Cold War and then Russia afterwards. Um, when that begins to kind of go away, where that consistency or that reliability of the U.S. approach begins to go away, um, it's important then to look at Russia through European eyes. And what the big nightmare scenario is for so many Europeans is that the U.S. is going to cut a separate deal with Russia, and they're going to leave them out in the cold. Uh, if you're a Balt or you're a Pole, um, there are a number of nations coming out of the old Warsaw Pact that tend to see conspiracies like that. And they remember things like that from World War II uh, earlier in the 20th century as well. That kind of history doesn't die off in Europe. And so uh, they're so fearful right now that what they're seeing is not consistent, it's not reliable, they don't know what's going on. And so part of Europe is trying to figure out, is there going to be a separate deal cut? Whereas the other part of Europe, and this is, is Germany and this is France, they're already beginning to move vis-a-vis -vis Russia to, to begin to uh, establish a different kind of bilateral relationship. And Macron, when you read what he has said and done with Putin's visit, uh, also what you were mentioning, what uh, Merkel had to say um, today or yesterday as well about we will continue to work with um, with the UK, with America, but also with Putin. So already they're beginning to fashion a kind of post-U.S. Um, leadership 
approach to Russia that begins to fit what they need because they live there on the continent with Russia. Russia is not just a security threat. Uh, like they are to us. If you're a European, Russia means a lot of other things sure, too. Sure, it means energy, it means exports, mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. the economic ties are oh, much yes. greater. Cultural, sure. people. I mean, it's a historic yeah. relationship between the nations of Europe and Russia that goes back centuries. So you're beginning now to see these shifts happening because this because there is not this assurance that where the United States is going is where these nations can go as well. So is this better for Putin? I mean, does he sort of laughing, sitting back at this and that he he gets to make bilateral relationships with individual states and, you know, attack them with cyber and give them oil deals, pepper them with this and that. I mean, is this what yeah, he wants? Or uh, yeah. does this? Oh, no, it's absolutely what he wants. I mean, Putin has had his eye on one goal and one goal only, undermine the transatlantic relationship, divide Europe from the United States and divide Europe from within. And he's winning in every category. I mean, Europe is divided from within. Now we've got Brexit. They're trying to grapple with different views on where we go with Russia coming out of Europe, Europe and the United States now at odds, trying to agree on a way forward. I mean, it's really played out quite nicely for him. And he can come in and seize on opportunities to continue to divide Europe from within. He purposely funds and supports parties, particularly on the far right, populist movements. He uses cyber tools, disinformation to fuel uncertainty about whether or not the European Union can meet the needs of European citizens, um, undermines faith in the NATO alliance. I mean, not having Trump say anything about Article 5 is something that Putin could only wish for. And we just delivered it to him. So it's entirely disheartening. Um, He's a fairly weak, you know, I think Obama was right, a bit of a regional player, but he can do tremendous damage with the tools in his toolbox and the leverage he has over some of those states in Europe. And for us not to showcase unity and resolve at this juncture is just devastating. You know, I got to be honest. If I could just add one more thing to what Julie said, I mean, it's absolutely true. Um, you, you mentioned uh, what the Russians normally do, which is energy embargoes or using cyber or bullying, you know, this type of thing. What's interesting now is that he doesn't even have to do that because, like Julie said, we've delivered it to him with no effort on his part. So to get the Germans or, or a smaller European country to all of a sudden establish a bilateral relationship a bit different than they would have done, he doesn't have to cyber attack them or, or cut off their energy it's going to come naturally because of what's happened. I mean, there's so much talk right now that you know the U.S. will relax sanctions, or as you said, Jim, they're going to cut a different deal. So I think Gary Cohen, the president's chief economic advisor, was on the plane with reporters, and they asked about sanctions, and he basically had to what seemed like you know spontaneously come up with a position, which was, oh, oh yeah, we're not going to do that. If anything, we might. Add additional sanctions. And I think everyone was extraordinarily surprised. I'm sure the president was as well. It, you know, it's the uncertainty and the lack of clear messaging that gives these opportunities, right? So, and then, you know, there's this the Paris Accords are coming this week, right? And so many of these things seem like own goals. This climate deal is enormously important to the European countries. They've worked very hard on it, they've wanted it for decades. And now Trump says, well, this is all, this is up for discussion. We're going to see this week whether we're still in it. I mean, look, that doesn't directly impact relationships with Russia, but it does show a lack of foresight, a lack of commitment, a lack of common goals between, you know, Europe and the United States. 
And the West's ability to solve global problems. I mean, what if we break away from the climate deal, it just further undermines the West's kind of leadership on these global issues. And in essence, it will ultimately put China more in the driver's seat. No one's going to abandon the deal if we do. So we may walk away, but everybody else is going to stick with it. So then we're no longer at the table. If anything, we're backbenching the meeting, if that. And the world's moving forward without us, and China will take a more uh, stronger leadership role, as, as we've already heard. Europe, by default, will have to work more closely with China. India now has said it's going to stay in. Russia as well. I mean, it's just to have the United States on the sidelines of a bunch of world powers coming together to solve one of the world's most challenging problems, uh, global problems, is just almost unimaginable. Can we talk? Just for a second, what a baller move it was by Pope Francis to give Trump the cli- <laughs> his climate encyclical as yeah, his gift. Yeah, yeah. That guy's got uh, – he's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah, half the move. And his gift to us was a super time. awkward photo shoot with Trump. Yeah. It was yeah. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And now he has to receive what uh, – Callista Gingrich, right? Yes. Indeed. Uh, Indeed. As our uh, new ambassador to the Vatican. Yeah. I mean, if just going back to the Paris deal, um, on the domestic end, um, one slightly ironic footnote is that the Paris deal is very much a Republican brainchild. I mean, George H.W. Bush, I think in 1992, when we first signed on to the International Convention on, on Climate Change, you know, a lot of what they pushed for was country by country, you set your own targets, you need industry buy-in. And the Paris deal, if, if you sort of unpack all of the politics swirling around it, is very much a deal that the Republicans had pushed for for decades. Um, I mean, that's you know one of the reasons we never signed on to the Kyoto Protocol was because you know China and India and other major powers weren't in. It was very restrictive cuts um, that each country had to adhere to on sort of a universal level. And so the Paris Agreement looks very much like one a George H. W. Bush or even George Bush might have created. But just because everything is so seeped in this toxic. You know, political culture now, it's it's become this sort of political football that that has just become completely skewed from from what the agreement actually is. I mean, is there any, anyone in Congress on the GOP side that's going to stand up for the Paris Accords? There's 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 You're a small. Well, go ahead. I mean, I think there's a small and growing contingent of of GOP. I think there are like 13 to 15 congressmen and then and then several uh, GOP senators who are signing on. Um, but I also think the, you know, the silence is is deafening. Um, you know, if this was a really bad deal, um, I think you would see a lot more Republicans in Congress actively speaking out on it as opposed to just holding their tongue. And then, of course, we should we should also remember that, you know, nearly every industry, including the Exxon Mobiles of the world, are urging Trump to stay in the deal, which is strange. <laughs> to say the least. Yes. Yeah. I mean, for somebody who's focused on jobs, 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 um, you know, th- this is tied to jobs. You know, if you think about where jobs of the future may reside, you can't deny that there will be a future for people investing in these new technologies and renewables and all the rest, not to overstate it. But I think why the reason you've seen some support from industry is they don't want to see the Chinese be the leader on some of this. Let us seize on American ingenuity and innovation and 
really try to be a leader. But by cutting us out of this deal, America's really taking a step back. And, you know, for the president, it's this, you know, going back to this fairy tale world of, you know, the 1950s to kind of reinvest and make manufacturing great again. I just it's hard to get there uh, in your head in terms of looking at where the jobs of the future are going to sit. You know, there's a statecraft problem that, that this is exposing. We are concerned about the impact of this on U.S. leadership and the optics and how that looks for the U.S. to be on the sideline. But if you're a if you're if, if you've worked in this environment and you've worked with nations on treaties and you've worked with uh, in a multinational framework, you know that statecraft and how you go about your work means you've got to be in there to shape it the way you want it. If you stand out of it, then you're ceding the battlefield to everybody else, and you'll end up bearing the cost of that. So a good statesperson, a, a good experienced um, uh, official of <laughs> there don't seem to be that many around right now, but they would have said no. We, we can't just we can't do what we did at the G7 and just say sorry. Give us our own paragraph that says we're going to take a take a, a knee on this right now at the G7, and we're going to you know look at it uh, for a decision on, on the next week. You know, instead, someone who knows the statecraft would have gone in there and worked language that would made us part of it, but would given given us some tools and hooks to use in the future as we deal with this. But instead, to take yourself out of the game completely, you just cede all all the levers to the other other folks. Yeah, and and then you know what we come away with instead of you know a sort of combined statement of the summit of shared experience and shared values and shared goals. Even if it's Trump's narrow focus on combating terrorism, right, which seems front and center, he wants this is you know against the Islamic State and in the wake of Manchester, of course. But what we get is this crazy aside where he tells you know he talks about German cars being very very bad, and this sort of bizarre 1950s sense of well if they don't make it here if it comes from, which is entirely devoid from reality. I mean the German car manufacturers. A lot of Americans like German cars, but they manufacture them in South Carolina and all over the place. In Alabama, they build these plants. They employ hundreds of thousands. So I, there is an extraordinary lack of statecraft. I mean one, one interesting footnote on this climate change debate is, is Trump staked a lot of his political platform on protecting you know, the coal and fossil fuel industry in the states. Uh, the coal industry in the United States today employs uh, less people than Arby's, the uh, fast food chain, just as one little – Wow. Fun stat. That's and is a lot less delicious. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Then Arby's plug speak, right speak there. for yourself. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've been to Arby's, I have to admit. But, you know, again, I, I think I saw – Robbie, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't Gary Cohen also say on the plane he walked back the coal, the coal jobs numbers or the, the fact that yeah. he basically said, look, we – you know – we're not going to invest in coal. This is an outdated technology. There's a lot more natural gas out there. We're going to put our money into you know energy sources that I, are. Yeah, I mean, I would actually encourage all the listeners to look up the full transcript of what Gary Cohn said on the plane because it was just, you know, he kept saying, "Let me be clear," and then he'd launch off into this incoherent tirade of, like, you couldn't really unpack what he was trying to say either on Russia sanctions or on coal, on energy, on climate change. It's pretty. Um, I don't know, entertaining, but also depressing, I, I guess is how I would put it. But yeah, yeah, it's just, um, you know, very long, incoherent, rambly sentences that that he, he went back, you know, to talk to the press pool to help clear things up and, and kind of did the opposite of it. 
Well, Trump came back to a world or a mess here in D.C. Um, I don't think we have time to get into it too much uh, because we might have to save that for the next podcast. But, you know, we've got the swirl of allegations around Jared Kushner, secret meetings with the Russians, Paris Accords, and, and then, you know, these sort of ludicrous statements, which I think I tweeted where Trump said, you know, Europe was – this was a great trip. We saved Americans billions of dollars and made millions of jobs. I mean, when do we start – when does anyone start holding the president accountable for this, this sort of stuff? I don't know. We're all speechless. I mean, it, it, just, it just keeps coming. I mean, I think what we've learned over and over in the last couple months is we're just not going to trend towards normal. You know, we're going to have situations where members of his team like Cohn will walk out and say one thing and then even some case reverse themselves, go back out and say another. And then, you know, a day or two or hours later, the president comes out and says something in contradiction. And we see that time and time again. And I I think we keep telling ourselves, well, maybe we can get to a place where we all just ignore the tweets and we focus on his cabinet and what he's actually doing. A lot of friends tell me to do that. Julie, don't focus on what he's saying, focus on what he's doing, but even in the doing category. So let's take that tweet. You know, I, I'm saving the U.S. millions or creating millions of jobs. I mean, there's just no evidence of any of that, really. I, even in the doing, his his version of what he's doing doesn't match reality. So I, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's hard. I think we are all trying to convince ourselves that there would be learning, that Mattis and, and H.R. McMaster would kind of level set the administration and they'd eventually get people in place, but we still don't have people in place in a lot of key positions, and there's no sign of it all leveling out. You know, it's exactly right, and what really concerns me is is damage limitation. I was, you know, the, 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 the speech that he gave at NATO, the reception that speech has received across Europe, you know, I, I said to myself a day or so later, I said, OK, we can survive this. This is, you know, he's now moved on to the G7. You know, we'll just have to just move on from here. He'll come back to the U.S., which he did, and he was mired in all the Russia stuff as soon as he came back. But then he, we had this salvo exchange between the Germans uh, and between Trump. I, this morning when I woke up and I read that tweet about Germany, I said, my God, it's like bleeding that you can't stop. You know, we need to put a tourniquet on this. And I, I said, I said, I, I, I called Julie and said, we've got to do something to stop this bleeding. We've got to tighten that tournament, that tourniquet, because this is the worst thing. We can survive a lot of things if we can compartmentalize, if we can put tourniquets on there. It's the Dutch boy with his finger in the dikes, you know, in the holes in the dikes. We can, we can, we can stop it. But now I'm starting to just see this as a nightmare that will not stop, and that means we'll bleed out. We cannot do that. We have got to, you know, and, and Merkel just did a tweet about an hour ago where she was kind of making that point. Um, she's, you know, she was saying that I think it was something like the German-U.S. relationship is, is older than Trump. We will prevail. We will prevail. Yeah, yeah. You know, this will – this. but I've been saying that to myself for two months now. And each time I take some comfort in that, something happens and, and we continue to, to bleed. So so I, I have to say today I, I just I, – I'm starting to despair a bit. Uplifting. Uh, yeah, thanks for that. Really, blood on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> in the middle studio. <laughs> <laughs> you can see it, folks. <laughs> 
But I, I would say, you know, people have been asking today, had a couple of friends ring up or emails or some calls from some reporters, you know, could do we have anything to really worry about? You know, we've had arguments with our European friends for many, many decades, and we'll just simply get through this. And, and I think there's some truth to that. Part of the relationship's on autopilot, and it does carry along at the lower levels. But here's where it could play out in really negative ways. Let's say uh, President Trump decides that we we are going to send more forces into Afghanistan. And let's say he and Mattis determine also that we have to ask our European allies to do that. As Jim and I know from working in government, usually when you have to make an ask like that, it has to be head of state to head of state. We can't have the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Europe, Jim Townsend, call up his counterpart and ask for more troops in Afghanistan. So when you make that ask, it's at the highest levels, and that's where personal relationships matter. And if Merkel and Trump are not going to have a bright, shiny, positive relationship, or not even bright, shiny, but just workable and, I don't know, constructive relationship, let me put it that way, then if Trump finds himself in a situation where he's like, hey, Germany, or any other country for that matter that he's been naming and shaming, let me ask you something. Would you send 5,000, 3,000, whatever it is, troops to conflict X? Let's say it is Afghanistan. You know, he may very fi- very well find after months or years of kind of abusing our allies through tweets and in these meetings that actually the answer that comes back is no. Um, and there you will see real ramifications of his behavior. Um, so I don't think we can assume right now that the sky is falling and the Atlantic relationships in tatters. I'm worried. We're all sitting here worried. But I think there is a future where this plays out in a really negative way for the United States and our interests. Think of the politics that these heads of state and government have in their own capitals. Uh, if you call and make an ask from Donald Trump and then you hang up, you have to turn around and convince your own government, including the parliament, to send 5,000 German troops to northern Afghanistan. That's a, that's a tall order even if you are getting the, the, the ask from Franklin Roosevelt. Right, it's right. a tall order. And so they're going to have to then turn around and say, Donald Trump just called me and he wants us to send 5,000 troops to Afghanistan. And, 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 and if you have a strategy to then show everyone and say this is what he wants to do and I think it's good, uh, that would help. But we don't even have a strategy. So what Julie says is absolutely right. You can abuse allies or not even abuse them. You can, you can, you can so concern them about your own leadership and where you're taking the United States. Uh, you, can, you, can, you can produce such a, a, uh, a deteriorating trust between two nations. When you go and make an ask, whether it's for troops or anything else, spending 2%, it's going to be hard for that leader to turn around and get the okay from the rest of the government. Yeah, there's no question about that. The optics will hurt Trump overseas. You know, he may not be popular here, but whoa, doggy. I mean, in Europe, this is persona non grata. So for Macron to, you know, convince the French electorate, and look, Merkel had a tough time convincing the German electorate under the Obama presidency. They didn't put troops into Libya. They didn't join the, the big NATO Libyan operation. That was a difficult position. She felt like she had to take it. I think you're entirely right. I can't see them jumping on board with Trump's policies. He's too reprehensible a figure to most people. Unless they really, you know, there's real economic benefit or they really feel like this is something where 
They're under threat. Or, yeah. yeah. It's got to yeah. be a convincing case. Yeah, I mean, I want to add just one small sliver of optimism to this doom and gloom party. <laughs> um, I mean, Merk, uh, you know, what, what Merkel said, I think, got a bit misinterpreted in the headlines, both yeah, due to no, poor translation it's true. It's true. and, um, you know, your 140-character quick reaction to reading a headline, which we're all guilty of, I'm sure. Um, but, I mean, the, the the way I read the quote is that she was talking about we Europeans need to, you know, work together and we can't rely on any relationships anymore. You know, I think the exact quote was, um, you know, I can only say we Europeans must really take our fate into our own hands naturally in friendship with the United States and in friendship with Britain and in good relations wherever possible with other countries, but we must know that we must fight for our future selves as Europeans. Um, and so I took that as a Europeans need to work together and forge a, you know, unity first and then, you know, maybe that subtweet about Trump second. Um, and so because of that, I think there might have been a positive side effect out of this Trump-NATO meeting, was that, which is that Macron and Merkel really have a lot more domestic political capital to work together to forge stronger European foreign policy um, without the United States, which frankly has been a, a U.S. foreign policy goal for a while to help you know, the EU or Europe as a bloc stand on its own two feet together. But not stand in opposition to America. I mean, that that image yeah. of Macron walking down the red carpet towards Trump and towards Merkel <laughs> yes. and then veering off at the last minute. You know. Another optics win. <laughs> but there was an, also another optic that was going around Twitter, which was Macron walking towards the, down that red carpet towards the heads of state and government. They yes. started singing. Uh, that was... Uh, that was also very interesting. Your points, I think, are right on. And I think it's important to see a, a knock-on effect is a strengthening French-German relationship. But I tell you who we have not talked about yet, and that's UK. For the UK, this is a nightmare because when they said they were going to leave Brexit, part of their, their safety net was their relationship with the United States. And so that might have looked okay last year, but now their safety net is developing some holes in it because now they're throwing their lot in with Donald Trump. And so for the UK, it's not like they can turn away from Trump and turn towards Europe because they're finding problems there too. So I think you're going to see a strengthened bond between the Germans and the French who are going to work together. You're going to see uh, a UK that's now caught in no man's land between Trump on the one hand and an EU that hates them on the other hand. So that's, that's, that's pretty bad for the UK. You know, it's another self-inflicted wound, isn't it? Blood all over the floor. It's a common theme yeah. this year. Robbie, I know you tried to steer it back to a happy ending, but I'm leaving it with uh, Jim's it metaphor. Well, you're the boss, so. uh, <laughs> And blood spurting. Um, and on that, ER nerds, I think we're going to leave it. We'll see you later in the week for another podcast. Thank you so much to Julie Smith, Jim Townsend, and Robbie Gramer. See you again soon. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much for joining us.